<laughs> Thank you very much for joining us here at Hudson Institute. My name is Lee Smith, and I'm a senior fellow here. Uh, we have a, a, a really a wonderful panel. Um, two of the people uh, are friends and colleagues. Andrew Tabler, who is at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and Tony Bedron, who is a research fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, Lena Khatib, who is a uh, head of the Middle East North Africa program at Chatham House, and Neil Quilliam, who is a senior research fellow with the Middle East North Africa program at Chatham House and the project director of the Syria and its uh, Neighbors Policy Initiative. I've, uh, we, we've been in touch over the last couple of weeks talking about this, uh, talking about this program and also the, uh, and also the uh, new report that Chatham House issued uh, and that both Lena and Neil will be speaking about, Western policy towards Syria, applying lessons learned. Uh, I'm afraid that we don't have a huge amount of copies uh, on hand. However, if you can download these from the Chatham House website, and I very much recommend that you do so, uh, both Lena and Neil will be talking a bit about the report, uh, as well as other things, including, uh, I mean, the main focus of it will be Western policy, so that will be uh, <laughs> British and EU policy, as well as American policy. Um, and it should be a, a fascinating panel for any number of reasons, and I look forward to learning an awful lot. From, uh, from four panelists I, uh, I respect and have learned from already. So thank you again very much for coming, and let's begin. Lena, if you'd like to kick it off. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here in D.C. to talk about Syria. Uh, we've been very busy, uh, obviously, like many other people have been, um, in thinking about what should happen next and also reflecting on the last six years. And that's why we published this report, Western Policy Towards Syria. And we're um, grateful to be uh, hosted here by the Hassan Institute to be able to talk to you about our work. Um, unfortunately, six years on, there doesn't seem to be much hope in sight uh, when it comes to seeing this conflict reaching a settlement, despite some noise that you may have heard in the media, such as very recently, just last week, about the agreement made in Astana, about what the media have reported as uh, safe zones in Syria, <clears throat> but that, that are in reality anything but uh, safe zones. Uh, my job at Chatham House, uh, in addition to being the head of the Middle East North Africa program, is to uh, lead the new phase of work uh, on Syria at Chatham House, which will be a project that flows from the one that has been led by Neil over the last uh, few years. Uh, the project will be called Syria from Within. And as you can see from the title, it talks about and will tackle dynamics on the ground in Syria. So I thought today I will start by looking a bit at the lay of the land inside Syria. Um, so that we can then think about what policymakers should take into consideration whatever they do next. One key thing, of course, uh, is the um, issue of the anti-ISIS uh, fight in Syria. Uh, everybody now is talking about Raqqa as being the next destination uh, after Mosul to be liberated from this group. My concern has been uh, for years now and remains that we are still talking about a military-only approach. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much policy, neither in the UK nor in the US, from what I can see, that looks much beyond uh, military issues. And this is highly problematic. Personally, I've done a lot of fieldwork on armed groups in Syria, including on ISIS and Nusra and some of the other groups. 
And my research has shown that in a lot of cases, people do not join these groups out of ideology. People join these groups out of pragmatism, sometimes economic pragmatism, sometimes military pragmatism, sometimes just because this is the group that is there in the neighborhood and people are either scared or they think this is the most effective way of trying to topple the regime in the absence of other alternatives. And these social, economic, and political drivers seem to me to still be missing when it comes to policy debates on fighting groups like ISIS and Nusra or Jabhat Fatah al-Sham or whatever it wants to call itself these days. So this is a very important issue that we'll be looking at in the project that I personally cover and that I think policymakers should take into consideration. Because <laughs> without it, we're only going to be perhaps changing the shape of the problem but not eradicating the problem. The concept, the, um, the conflict in Syria is already evolving. It is, it is changing shape. And as things stand at the moment, the direction in which things are going leads me to believe that groups like Jabhat al-Nusra are becoming more and more popular, more and more entrenched, and are integrating more and more with other rebel groups, especially that the US, for example, has cut the funding to the Free Syrian Army. So when groups on the ground don't want to go back home because their grievances, their political and economic grievances continue, they will just be pragmatic and collaborate with whoever is available, and Nusra preys on that. And this leads me to the next point, which is about what I mentioned, and we can talk more later on about it, the issue of de-escalation areas, as the memorandum in Astana calls them, that, as I said, the media have reported them as safe zones. This is not an agreement to have safe zones. This is basically a way for Russia and Iran to increase their own control of opposition areas in Syria, especially the area of Idlib, which has seen perhaps the most uh, degree or highest degree of integration uh, of rebel groups that I, that I mentioned in my first point. And in some ways, I personally think that using... Uh, a scheme like de-escalation areas as a way to legitimize, between quotation marks, the involvement of Iran on the ground in an area of Idlib and allow it access and to have observation posts around this uh, governorate is much easier than trying to attack Idlib militarily. Um, I'm talking about the regime in Iran and, and, and Russia. So we have to uh, think critically about uh, certain agreements uh, th that seem on, uh, at face value to be uh, rather good, but in reality they are not. And I will just close with saying that another issue that the policy community needs to think about in this regard is the issue of pro-regime militias. Everybody is focusing on extremism uh, led by Sunni jihadist groups, but there is comparatively little attention to what's happening in regime areas with the pro-regime militias that are also evolving and that have political aspirations in the future and they are already affecting the way regime institutions are operating. And so for anyone who thinks that maybe if Assad takes over, we'll have a degree of stability in Syria, the presence of these militias on the side of the regime is one thing amongst many <coughs> that lead me to firmly believe that regime takeover will not bring with it stability in any way. This is where I will end for yeah. now. Lena, that's terrific. Thank you for an excellent introduction. Uh, one of the things that I, that, um, that I certainly want to come back to is the idea of, the, is the idea of Nusra and ISIS, that ideology 
is perhaps an overemphasized point, and we need to be looking at other at other issues. And 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 that is uh, that is, I believe, a point that needs to be made more frequently here. Uh, here in Washington, as you may have found the last few days well, when you guys are here. But in any case, thanks very much for the introduction. Um, Neil, if you, would, uh, if you would pick up. Sure, thank you very much. Um, as Lena has said, and as Lee has said, this is an outcome, sort of final product of a, of a, a project that, that I've been leading, leading for three years, and it's, it forms a nice segue between our Syria and its neighbors policy initiative and the, the project that Lena is just about to um, embark upon. We wanted to Coming up to six years, we want to sort of take stock, stand back a little bit, um, try to capture what's taken place over the past six years, and then just sort of think about some lessons, broader lessons that, that we can learn as you move towards your new administration, and the UK is most certainly heading towards its own election, so it seemed, um, though we had no pre-knowledge of that, it seems a very a good moment to sort of take stock and, and think about that. The report, if you if you download it, you'll see a sort of it's a report of two halves. The second half is a short, abbreviated um, sort of history as to what's taken place. Um, we identify six turning points, um, and we've tried to condense it as much as possible. Obviously, you could write reams and books and journals covering that, but we've tried to sort of keep that tight and succinct. The first half, however, thinks about what we can do going forward, what lessons we, that we can draw. Um, and there's, there's quite a depth of that. And I've sort of, as, as I was sat here listening to Lena, I was sort of scrabbling in my mind trying to think, you know, which two or three can I just pull out? Perhaps through the conversation we can, um, we can draw out more. I think two or three are the key things that, that we need to think about as we move forward. Number one, I would say, is very much how we conceptualize or how we visualize Syria and what that means going forward. I think to date we've, we, you know, we, we think of Syria as a sovereign state. We think of it as, as, as regime and rebel and complex situation where it's, it's a regional struggle, it's an international struggle, it's also a national struggle. What do I mean about how, how, how do we visualize that? I think Lena's sort of final point about having you know, regime victory will not bring stability. I mean, I think, that, I think that's absolutely key. It's hard to imagine or envisage the conflict in Syria ending anytime soon. I think as policymakers or as those hoping to inform policy, we need to be thinking about the longer term. What does that actually mean? It's highly unlikely, I cannot imagine a scenario in which the regime itself could extend its authority militarily through other means across the rest of the country. Even if it had that capacity, the conflict wouldn't end the day after. Um, so that's something we need to think about. The conflict or the war has generated um, a new uh, structure within the country. You have new warlords, you have new groups that are vying for power. How you get them to buy into a political settlement is extremely complex. How do, how do those parts configure? How do they pull together? That's something that, uh, as we move forward, we really need to envision and think about. One of our other key thoughts is um, capacity, capability, and political will of external powers, meaning the US, meaning the EU, meaning the UK, and how it approaches Syria. Um, unsurprisingly, policy has been driven by much more sort of short-term impulses, by immediate response, and without a sort of a broader strategic vision, without a long-term look to the future. 
Um, that's that's seen a, that's given rise to a number <coughs> of issues and problems along the way. You know, red lines, whether they're there or not, um, has played an instrumental role in giving some groups um, more authority to move ahead, or other groups less authority to move ahead. Um, arming or not arming, these these are all issues that have that have been sort of almost decided on an ad hoc basis and have given rise to to extending the um, extending the the conflict. There came a point sometime after the US, the EU countries called on Assad to stand down or said it's time that he should move aside. We would like to see him go. There came a point when the, the idea, the concept that if he did go, what would that actually mean? That seemed to become a bigger fear than anything else. And I think this is where, when we think about policy, you know, we tend to sort of move from one conflict to another, and obviously the whole debathification issue is very sort of prominent in uh, in recent memory. So, do you debathify? We we learned the consequences of that. So, you want to keep those state structures in place because that's going to form an essential part of what a political settlement might be. But I'm not sure that that logic actually holds because I'm not sure that we really understand what those state structures, what those state institutions within the country really are, what they look like. Um, if we're talking about health, if we're talking about education, if we're talking about the energy sector, if we're talking about aspects of the economy, are we talking about the security services? I mean, is it, is it enough to sort of think, well, we can take out the top level, layer, then the rest of the structures and institutions will remain in place? I'm not sure that they, they're there. I just I don't know. I think this is an area that requires significant research, and I think that's that's something that needs to be looked at because we have non-state actors on the ground that are fulfilling part of those functions of those institutions now. How could they somehow be assembled together to form a national institution later on if we're moving into a post-settlement conflict? Not sure how those structures really are. Whether if you do push them, whether they collapse or whether you can integrate new state actors, it's not clear that you have strong state institutions. I know I'm coming um, up to my seven points, so I just want to finish on one little thing. Um, I guess when we were looking at Syria and we were looking, say, from the EU perspective and certainly from the UK perspective, we saw it as an era when we lost pretty much, if we ever had, all leverage. So we wondered how, you know, how, how could the EU, how could the UK begin to gain a little bit of leverage again? And we see that in a post-settlement environment in the reconstruction. We're not convinced that the Russians or the Iranians or other allies of the, of the regime will have the funds or the support to put into a reconstruction program. If the EU are to be part of that measure, and uh, I would imagine they would want to be, that would be the one area perhaps where they can gain some leverage, gain some conditionality over whatever that political settlement looks like. And I'll just finish on that point. Uh, that was terrific. Thank you very much, Neil. And I do want to come back to uh, uh, reconstruction at a certain point. This is something that uh, that Tony, uh, I know, has written about, and I believe that Andrew m may have as well. Um, the uh, the other thing that I really want to touch on is the idea of state structures, uh, and this is an idea that I think, in the past, has been used by different players to argue for uh, not touching the regime. To talk about, well, we certainly understand why people are concerned about the aftermath of Iraq. And we certainly understand about the issues with debathification, but I do think in lots of ways, and it seems that you're sort of, it's very interesting what your point is, like everyone is talking about these, let's figure out what they mean. So it's really interesting. Tony, if you could, uh, if you would please continue. Um, thanks, Lee, and it's a 
always a pleasure to be here. Um, so as we've spoken about uh, the lay of the land in Syria and prospects for EU policy um, and the idea of taking stock of the past six years, so let's, let's continue with this theme uh, because there's a lot of assumptions, as, as Neil was pointing out, that really people haven't um, sort of stepped back and, and considered what they were and whether they were done intentionally or that we just kind of haphazardly fell into them uh, or, or what. So there's a lot of assumptions and premises on Syria uh, under the Obama administration that I think bear reconsideration. So how do we find ourselves in the position that we find ourselves in today? And, uh, and I think it's important, um, some of us, I mean, Lee and myself have argued that the Obama administration's approach to Syria was uh, linked to its uh, Iran policy. So the idea of what the administration was going to do and was not going to do in Syria is directly related to that. But it's more than that. It's not just... So a lot of people have considered that we, uh, that the previous administration did not want to take sides in Syria or to maintain a level of neutrality or... Uh, I think that's false. I think that the decisions that were taken by the previous administration, which today are shaping the framework that we are operating in on a tactical level, so whether be it with the Kurds, be it with the Shiite militias in, in Iraq, be it with Lebanon and Hezbollah, uh, be it with Jordan, be it with Israel and the situation in, in Qunaitra and the Golan, for instance, all of these areas have been affected by that strategic framework that the Obama administration took, which was, I will argue, not a neutral one, but actually one that quite explicitly uh, elevated Iranian interests over everyone else's and sought even to neutralize anti-Iranian activity in the country by other regional uh, states, uh, be it against Assad or elsewhere, uh, so as not to um, alienate the Iranians. And this, and this, you know, everybody talks about the chemical weapons episode, but it, it extends to a lot more tactical level decisions that, that the administration has taken, uh, including, by the way, the dealing with the, with the Kurds that we see today uh, taking place, which was an, uh, which was an, an important uh, decision by the Obama administration, not to, going back to 2012, not to back any Turkish initiatives in Syria. Uh, so that, that's, that's one thing. Um, the other thing, I think also, um, in, when talking about the, 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 the broader strategic framework or the other frameworks on Syria, how to approach Syria, is that we have spoken about it in almost purely in terms of a humanitarian issue. So as far as the United States is concerned, the previous administration's position, well, like, we really don't have any interests here. We, we just want the fighting to stop. We just want the violence to stop. We just want to de-escalate. That's really, that's really what this is, our, our concern here is. The fact of the matter is that it's not true that this is the American interest in Syria. Uh, obviously, a humanitarian interest is a primary American interest, but to suggest that there aren't hard geopolitical, strategic, and security interests for the United States in Syria and for its allies uh, is, is ludicrous. Uh, why? We see it. We see that, that the Israelis are saying, hey, look, your policy in Syria has brought the IRGC to our border. 
Um, um, same with Jordan now. We'll get into that in a second because it's relevant to developments that are taking place today and after the Astana meeting. Um, the Jordanians found themselves in the similar position that all of a sudden the IRGC is right smack on their border and that they will soon be able to have a direct line from their northern border in Iraq all the way down to the Syrian desert to Dara. Uh, to mention, to say nothing about the Russians there, to say nothing about NATO and what happens to NATO when the Russians are there and what happens to a NATO member when we are working with a terrorist group that uh, that is leading a, uh, an insurgency against the Turkish state. So all of these issues are, and to say nothing about the EU and the refugee situation. So all of these issues are non-humanitarian issues. These are very hard security issues that directly affect not just security in terms of counterterrorism, but very specifically geopolitics and the balance of power in the region. And I think the Obama administration deliberately underplayed those concerns for the same reason that I mentioned earlier, which is its dealings with Iran and its desire to kind of disengage um, and hand over the keys to the Iranians in, in many ways. Um, so that's the framework that we're stuck in. So as we continue to make decisions today, be it in the anti-ISIS campaign, or whether we arm the Kurds, or whether we put, you know, safe zones, or you know, all all of these sort of talking points and headlines. What within what strategic framework are these things taking place? Are we simply doing things that ultimately will end up advancing? a a strategy that was by design a pro-Iranian strategy. And we should think about the ISIS campaign in those terms as well, because for the Obama administration, the ISIS campaign was an excellent cover for, so by attaching the Iran Iran policy to the anti-ISIS policy, it kind of immunized it so that who who in their right mind is going to say, no, we shouldn't defeat ISIS? It's not going to happen, right? So how do you defeat ISIS? When you've conditioned and you've framed the, the, the battlefield and your, who you work with and what uh, uh, partners you, you, you use, then you've conditioned how the post-ISIS balance of power is going to look like. And if we're continuing with that, without reconsidering that framework, then whatever we're doing now may very well also end up advancing Ironically, the same, uh, the same uh, strategy that the previous administration put in, put in place. So I think it's a good time to step back and, okay, say, all right, there are things that we're stuck with. We're not going to be able to, you know, not, we're not going to be able to wait another, let's say, year or 18 months to, to build up a, another force to take Raqqa, for instance. Politically, it becomes not feasible. At the same time, we should be very aware of the strategic implications of all these things that we're doing, be it in in southern Syria or in northern Syria or in eastern Syria. Um, And state institutions, I'll finish on this point, the state institutions issue is an interesting point because it's not something that's relevant to Syria only. The previous administration used state institutions not only in Syria but also to describe partners in the anti-ISIS campaign as state institutions, as governments the government of Iraq being one of them, the government of Lebanon being one under the other, neither of which are actual real government in the way we would talk about governments. Rather, they are deeply pro-Iranian 
entities. So, and they both rely deeply on non-state military institutions such as Hezbollah or the IRGC-led militias in Iraq. So all of a sudden you're partnering with a state institution against ISIS and all of a sudden you're giving close air support to the IRGC. So that also uh, is another aspect of, okay, what is the framework that we're operating here? We may not have too many choices. We may have to go along with certain things because that's what by design was given to us. At the same time, it's really important that the, the geopolitical effects of this, uh, of this course of action are properly understood and then solutions or, or plans are, uh, are put in place to deal with what comes next. Yeah, thanks, Tony. That, that, that's terrific. And one of the things that I'm seeing both between, between the Chatham House report and Lena, what you were saying, and Tony, what you just said is it is about stepping back and reassessing at this point, recognizing some of the things, uh, some of the structures, the framework that may be locked in, but it's time to look again at other things. And what you were both talking about is different ideas about ISIS. And I am concerned, we've been concerned for a while that the way that people are thinking about ISIS is uh, concealing a number of other different issues. And maybe ISIS shouldn't uh, own the place of privilege in American strategic thinking or in Western strategic thinking that it does right now. So it's really important, just as, as you all are saying, to step back and look at this again. Andrew, if you would, uh, if you would uh, conclude this introductory round, and then we'll swing back around again. Thanks. Sure. Um, well. Uh, it's always great to go last, um, <laughs> yeah. but I have to say the, um, it's always great to go on um, and to speak on a panel with as great of people as we have up here. That's today. Very These are yeah. people I deeply respect, uh, have known for years, uh, going way back before, long before Syria melted down, and uh, we've had a lot of conversations on this, um, and we always didn't agree. Um, but I think we, uh, the, the, the conversation here today is very, very important given the direction uh, that things have been going. Now, a couple of things to start out with. First of all, I totally agree with Tony in saying that uh, our policy or, or, the, uh, or what the United States had been envisioning was largely a, a carryover from the Obama administration. There are a lot of reasons for that. It's been, it's been a, not, a rough, not so much a rough transition as a, as a difficult one to manage, I think, particularly uh, so far. I think U.S. policy was on autopilot, essentially, until the Han Shihun attacks. Yes. And that abruptly caused the pilot to take, to disengage the autopilot mechanism, right? For very good reasons, uh, right? I mean, it was, it's outrageous enough that Bashar al-Assad is still resorting to chemical weapons on his own people, which he has on multiple occasions, as proven by the, by the UN fact-finding mission. Uh, it's just previously he used chlorine and continues to use chlorine, um, but, uh, but decided that he was going to turn to a substance he, had pledged to destroy with Russian guarantees, sarin, um, and to use it from regime aircraft, right? And that's way off the rails. So, you know, for that was, that was, I think, enough to change anyone's mind. And it was a sort of wake up call and it caused the administration, I think, in many ways to pull, uh, the Syria policy off of autopilot. But the, but the strategic framework, the, the question is, what's the alternative? So the Obama administration's strategic framework was put best um, uh, in a piece uh, by, and his name is uh, Jeremy um, uh, Shapiro. Shapiro. 
shortly after he, no, 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 I'm sorry, Tony, but uh, shortly after he left, shortly after he left state planning, and in this piece, I would urge you to read it, he said that, that the Obama administration's regional policy was not about uh, getting into bed with Iran, but was about getting out of bed with Saudi Arabia. Right? So it was this passive, we're just going to readjust where we're standing, our posture, and we're just going to let things, what they called rebalancing or geopolitical equilibrium, sort of come about. Right? And of course, the, um, the problem um, with that is that when it was originally conceptualized, and I think it was before Obama was elected, uh, the region was a much more peaceful place, right? And you, you could perhaps manage it a little bit better. It was always going to be hard. But instead, this policy was implemented over top of the largest regional upheaval in recent memory, if not in, 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 in perhaps in modern history. Now, one of the things that frustrated the um, those who argued against this policy, and there were many from across the various political spectrums, it wasn't just Republicans, it was Democrats too, a lot of them, uh, and that was the, um, there is still remains a lot of frustration over the very limited capacities of our allies to fight as the Iranians do. In the our regional allies have a lot of great stuff, a lot of great military hardware that we sell them. They know how to fly it. We've told them how to fly it. We've told them how to use it and so on. They're not very good at the substate actor game. They're good at buying this stuff and being able to plug into a regional network but it, but beyond that, their ability to fight in the substate actor game is is more limited, and that's that's a reality that, that I think everyone needs to overcome, and ultimately will be the basis for any kind of alternative to the current uh, to, to the current policy. Now, just to make it more serious, specific, I totally agree with Tony um, in terms of U.S. interests, and Tony's argued on a number of occasions quite eloquently. You know, the United States never really had a lot of interests. I mean, hard interests in Syria. Um, in fact, uh, Syria was not of much economic consequence, political consequence, and so on. Syria was only ever important for, for one reason, and that's geography. Um, and so I used the uh, analogy of the row houses. Um, and if you look at the Lebanon War, which was horrific, 15 years or so, um, for as horrific as that was, Lebanon was the sort of small row house on the end of the block. Right? And when it caught fire and filled up with rats and so on, the, the intervention of neighboring row houses into that environment right, helped to stabilize it. And, and it was incomplete, and it was often terribly messy and so on. But it, the Lebanon conflict was contained. That was the, that was the issue. The, the, the problem with Syria, it is the row house in the middle of the block. It just, it just is. So the Obama administration had a specific policy. It was called carterization. And carterization uh, was that the somehow that the it wasn't just that the Syrian conflict would somehow be containable, but that it would burn itself out from inside, that it wouldn't affect anyone's regional security architecture. And um, and this is a it's a it's a public policy. It's been talked about on a number of occasions. And I, I'd encourage you to to, to check into it. Um, and but of course Syria did, was not contained. The conflict did not burn itself out. Uh, and um, when that became apparent in terms of the uh, filling up of uh, major parts of the country with U.S. designated terrorist organizations on all sides of the conflict, not just the opposition sides, but all sides, uh, and then, of course, the refugee flows, and then when those two streams crossed, the extremism and the refugee flows, that supercharged the conflict and ultimately has shaken Western political, Western political environment in one way, shape, or form ever since, right? 
So the Han Shehun incident was a wake-up call in a number of ways. It wasn't just about Assad's behavior. Very simply, it highlighted the biggest constraint of the Assad juggernaut argument, and that is the regime's very limited military capacities. So how is it that a regime that supposedly has all of these forces, that is an inevitability inside the country, that controls now a little north of a third of Syrian territory, how is it that it decided to resort to the use of strategic weapons so blatantly? And that's because it's being pressured by the Russians and the Iranians to go out east, to become relevant in the ISIS fight, and to exploit weaknesses in our strategy there. And while they were doing that, they began losing territory around Hama very rapidly, and they began using chlorine and then sarin, and then we had the current incident. Now, what are the Russians and the Iranians seeing as the holes in our strategy? They know something very well that a recent report we brought out at the Washington Institute highlights, but we're not the only ones, that the split between the Syrian Democratic Forces and the settled tribes of the Euphrates Valley is vast, particularly around Raqqa and the four tribes that have historically dominated that city. And that I would say our report indicates that the Syrian Democratic Forces, as currently constructed, it is not a fixed entity, so to speak, as currently constructed, will have a hard time taking and stabilizing that city. And that same formula can go the whole way down the Euphrates Valley. It is for two reasons. One, the Syrian Democratic Forces is overwhelmingly dominated by the YPG. It is a fact. It has other Arab forces with it, which is the second point, SAC, Syrian Arab Coalition. However, the members of SAC are either minorities or are Bedouin tribesmen, which are different than the Bedouin tribes, the settled tribes of the Euphrates Valley. So essentially, this would all work out fine if there wasn't so much historic animosity between Kurds and the Bedouin tribes and the settled tribes of the Euphrates Valley. So I think they're going to have a very, very hard time, and the Russians know that. They are pitching up outside to the west of Raqqa in order to present themselves as an alternative for when our strategy falls apart. They also know another very important issue, and that is we don't have a strategy at the moment beyond the SDF falling apart. If it falls apart, say la vie, what are we going to do? We are let local forces carry it out, which is the current policy. The problem, of course, and that gets to everyone's points here, I think, today, and that is the way this is sorting out is not in U.S. interests on a variety of reasons. One is that it's not just that Iran would be building this bridge, essentially, throughout the Middle East and aggravating our allies and so on, but it's very clear, and you can see this from the Khan Sheikhian incident, that the entity that's being built by the regime, to Lena's point and to Neil's point, is not stable. It is not something to which all the refugees will go back, or even the majority, I would argue, and is not something that is in U.S. interest, specifically of its allies, be it Turkey, the Arab countries, or Israel. And I think that is a difficulty. I'll conclude with the point Neil spoke about earlier, and that is what is, and it gets back to the what is the alternative issue. It's one that is an important one. It's one that hasn't been completely hashed out, and it's in this that you can see the arguments between the U.S. argument has always been, in the Western argument, that the regime's structure is a pyramid with Assad at the top. And given the trajectory of the conflict, 
Uh, it has forced all of the minorities and others around the regime, and it's not just minorities, they're also Sunnis, to gather into this pyramid and that you could remove the top and that they would probably stay together out of a fear of the alternative. The Iranian argument, and sometimes the Russian argument, because it, the Russian argument is not monolithic, is that it's an inverted pyramid. You take off the capstone of this inverted pyramid and the whole thing falls apart. I don't see any evidence for the latter uh, interpretation. It doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. Uh, the problem we have is that we don't know how this would all shake out. Right? But we have to prepare ourselves for either scenario, and it might be something in between there. And, um, and I think that is something that is certainly worth talking about. It's about worth talking about both with our allies first, but also even in the future with our adversaries as concerns of a final settlement. On that, I'll conclude. Thank you. Andrew, that, that's terrific. Thanks very much. I, I was very, uh, it's very interesting, the point you make about the settled tribes and the Kurds. Uh, let's, since, um, since you ended on that point, let's use that as a transition because one of the things that we, that we want to address is not just as we, we've done a, a good job of, of explaining the past and saying how we reassess it. So right now you're actually talking about, I'm going to ask you to start. Right now we're actually talking about a real policy in which the YPG now will be, uh, in possession of, will be armed by the United States directly, and presumably they will be leading the fight in Raqqa. And you are saying that you think that this is destined to fail and that the Russians will be waiting around to, the Russians are waiting around to pick up the pieces of this failed policy. Well, let's just put it this way. I think that the, indi the indicators are there, and they're very clear, okay. that the Kurdish-Arab split in eastern Syria uh, remains and will be a major factor going forward. So it all depends on how skillful the Syrian Democratic Forces really are. Okay, so it's a matter oh, I'm sorry, skillful at, at... at... Politically. So I think you need to look at the SDF as the difference between a company that is has uh, shareholding issued and shareholding outstanding, right? So if you have 10,000 shares of a company, but you only have 5,000 of them issued, okay? So let's, let's talk about the 5,000 that are issued so far, right? That is a Kurdish-dominated force. It is viewed by the parties on the ground as a vehicle for Kurdish domination of those areas, period, right? And the evidence is all there. Now, the question is, as that unfolded, would it be possible to expand the shareholding, both to settled tribes in the Euphrates Valley uh, or with other forces. And we don't know that yet because that decision hasn't been made. But in order to keep the peace, you're going to have to expand the shareholding of the SDF. Or okay. or it fails, right? And then I think the Russians are putting themselves in a position to, and they do this very well, actually, to take advantage of our failures. And so that no matter what happens, they're there to offer uh, an alternative and one that the Arab tribes might look at. They'll say, well, we have the, we have the um, YPG on the one side, uh, in the SDF, and we have the Russians in the regime. Let's go back to the way things were before. Um, uh, I think there are some problems in that argument too, given the, const the construction of the forces. But I think that's generally what they're doing. I think you're being. I think you're. We're putting it in a very nice way, in a very generous way. But your argument, your actual rhetoric, is suggesting that it's a policy that's destined to fail. 
I, uh, so my, my staff in Syria had a saying, uh, and I don't even know if it's a Syrian one. They said, uh, <laughs> those that gaze into crystal balls to predict the future are destined to eat ground glass. <laughs> uh, so, and I don't even think it's Syrian. It's probably Chinese. Who knows? We're the, the, the end of the Silk Road. So, um, but, but in any case, I would hate to okay. predict something. You know, we, we could have something in between. But you're we, could, okay. we could have it where the SDF goes in. There's a period of stability. But in the end, if you keep the SDF as it's currently constructed, you're going to run on the rocks of the reality realities that have come out not only of our report, but of lots of others. And that's a big problem because it won't be stable. Well, let me ask um, uh, from, from the view of London, what, uh, what, is, the, what is the view of, of, uh, of this policy, of, of this policy, and what, are you, what do you think the chances are for success? And if we're talking about reassessment, what happens next? If Andrew's saying the Russians are waiting to, are waiting to come in, how does the United States shape this differently? Well, at the moment, if we are going to run the scenario that Andrew has described, the recent decision to arm the YPG very much plays right into the hands of Russia. I mean, if the idea is to have only two alternatives on the ground, the YPG or the regime, then by empowering the YPG, what, what is effectively happening is empowering the regime indirectly. Um, I, I get what you mean. Can you just elaborate a little bit more? Yes. Uh, I mean, I, 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 running, running that scenario, at the moment, you have people in Raqqa with grievances against mm -hmm. the regime. But, and I have spoken to some of those people, they have greater grievances about the YPG than they do about ISIS. Because oh. not everybody under ISIS control actually likes ISIS. They want to be liberated from ISIS, but not at the hands of the Kurds. So if Why? US, what are the particular? Because of the um, transgressions that have been conducted by some of the Kurdish militias already in the fight against ISIS. So there is ethnic uh, tension going on, and there have been transgressions, such as in Tal Abyad, when some of these Kurdish forces did come and, and take land uh, back from ISIS, but uh, engaged in uh, violence against the Arab residents. So I'm, when you I'm, have... I'm going to say one thing. This is yeah. great. I just want to say I, I, it's important every time we, we do a panel that touches on this, I'm always at pains to try to make it clear for our audience here and for whomever may be uh, streaming mm -hmm. that oftentimes our language about different political institutions in the region is sloppy. Yeah. So when people talk about Kurds, there's this wide thing. And as Tony has said, it's not a real analytical category. So what we're talking about here is something in particular. We're not talking about a wide, a, 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 a broad ethnic group. We're talking no, about of course. particular institutions. No, 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 it's great. No, 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 I understand. I, <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to step in for a second. I, I'm and, agreeing with yeah. you because it's very important not to, not to kind of right. uh, put it in, in black and white terms. So as I said, some of these militias who were involved in this fight engaged in violence against the Arab communities that are resident in these areas. So the issue is, if you have an area that is mostly Arab, that's being liberated by people from an ethnic community in which there are tensions with that community, you're going to have problems. The people who are the, the residents of this area will not want these newcomers who do not come from the area to be the ones holding it. And, and this is one of the biggest risks. So if Russia thinks that, great, this tension is actually very useful because it will make people say, actually, we now prefer the regime, then what I'm saying is okay. the U.S. Okay. decision to support the YPG will, in a way, indirectly end up presenting us with this impossible uh, choice and pushing people towards 
uh, choosing the regime. However, <laughs> the caveat here is, do we really think that it's going to actually be like that? Because ISIS will put up a very, very tough fight in Raqqa, just like it is putting up a very tough fight in Mosul. And what might happen as a result of this impossible uh, choice is that more people might rally to the side of ISIS in this kind of situation, <clears throat> rather than thinking, who would I prefer to liberate me? I'll choose the lesser evil. They might actually choose to stick with ISIS, which is the third alternative. So the way this battle to liberate Raqqa is being thought about is highly problematic. Right. Tony, I see you uh, evincing some... Well, what, what's that? There, there are... Uh, uh, just to build on what, what Lena's saying, but it's not just that the, you're, you're not just create, this is why I said, okay, it's not just the idea of the battle plans that are being put in place, but it's, you may have, you may get, st you're stuck with it, okay? The, nobody's going to say, okay, I have a force that's ready to go into Raqqa, but I'm not going to use it. I'm going to wait for another year, 18 months to build something else and risk in the meantime some, I don't know, explosion in Paris that's going to be blamed on the new administration. Okay, it's politically not, go not going to work, right? So the question is, what do you do to start to think about mitigating what comes next, to control the geopolitical effects, to control the internal dynamics and so on? One of the other, so one of the things that the Obama administration didn't do, they said, okay, you said, we have nothing here. We, we don't, we don't, we don't, don't want anything here. Then Vladimir Putin came in with like 20 planes and all of a sudden he owns the Middle East. Okay. The United States has tremendous assets now between Jordan, between the Mediterranean and within northeastern Syria. Those assets need to be translated into political leverage and political decision-making capability vis-a-vis -vis the Russians, vis-a-vis -vis the Iranians and vis-a-vis -vis the Kurds. Okay. So Whatever you need to build to do that, it cannot be that, uh, you know, a Stalinist Kurdish militia in northeastern Syria can drag the United States wherever it wants. That's just not going to happen. So people need to know their place, as it were. So, and the United States really needs to begin to assert uh, that it's, it's uh, uh, military power there and the fact that none of these actors can do anything we're talking about the PMF or the Shiite militias in, 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 in Iraq. Before the United States were, was giving them air support, they were going back in body bags by the hundreds. Okay, So these guys don't have the fighting capability on their own. Same thing for the Kurds. I know everybody talks about the PKK's tremendous mythical fighting capacity. Okay. You have the United States behind you. You have air support. You have training. You have all kinds of things. right? So that needs to become... Uh, to conceptualize how you're going to frame that area, which is now an American area, right? From the border of Jordan and the, even, I would say, from Kunaitra, you're going to swing down all the way that of southern, eastern Syria, all the way up to Kamishli. That needs, okay, we're not going to have a fight, let's say, with the Russians directly, okay, fine. But that area, the United States needs to assert itself in that area. And that means telling the Kurds, certain things. The idea that the Kurds can do what they did in Membij, for instance, of inviting the Russians and the regime into Membij, where they shouldn't even have been to begin with, because the Obama administration had promised the Turks that they would pull them back east of the Euphrates, and they didn't. Th that this then becomes a conduit for the Russians and the regime to come in 
into areas. So to build on Lena's point, the idea is not just that what happens with the Arabs of Raqqa, that they may they become susceptible to manipulation by the Russians and the regime, but the same thing happens with the Kurds. What if the Kurds then say, I'm going to cut a deal with these guys that cuts you? So we put in all the effort, we put all the money, they get the, and then they, and they waltz in with a, see, the regime doesn't have to have capacity to walk into these areas. It can build that, it can build a coalition with the Kurds. Why? Because the Kurdish, uh, areas of northeastern Syria are still dependent on regime salaries and regime infrastructure. Uh, what, what we called about state earlier, the idea of state institutions, right? Services. They get salaries from Damascus. Their electricity. They have land routes now from, uh, from Kamishli and Hasake to Damascus and from Damascus to Beirut, which, by the way, is another thing to worry about. But the airport from Kamishli runs, uh, trips to Damascus. Never stop. The regime still has positions in Kamishli and Hasake, as it does in Deir Zur. Tony, I, I want actually to use this as, uh, to, Transition to what Neil was speaking about before with the um, with the uh, with state institutions. I'm curious to know how this. I mean, Andrew gave a very you know give a very interesting reading of this. So I, I mean, most generally, what is the size of the regime, right? What what it, is it that we think the size of the regime looks like? I know it is difficult to have an assessment of this, but when we're talking about how this may, uh, how this offensive on Raqqa might push people towards the regime. What does the regime look like? The Assad regime, that is. What does it look like at this point? You, you know, it's going to. Yeah. Neil, for you. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, to be frank, I have no idea in, t in terms of size. I mean, 30,000, 40,000, nobody really knows. And this is, this is my key point is that um, I'm, I've spoken to a lot of EU governments. Um, and sort of stressed, you know, this, the weakness in this, this assumption that, you know, if you, if you take off the top, then, you, you know, the, the regime can remain in place and the institutions right. are strong and robust. Um, or if you take them off, then it's all going to collapse and the, the right. fear about it is collapsing. I don't think we know. We don't know where right. the stresses are. We don't know where those strains are. It, and it seems to be a central question, though, in the way that you hear lots of people speaking all the time, and they'll compare it, say, to Libya. Well, we don't, look, he might be a bad guy, he's a warlord, but he kept things mostly under control. It's like, but this is not what this regime looks like. Right. It doesn't seem to be what this regime looks like after after six years of war now. No, no, ab sorry absolutely. For, no. But I mean, it's, I mean, it's, we can see the material support that it's, it's lent by, by Russia, by Iran, and, you know, looking at it, but not actually being there to, to you know, understand or stress test that. I mean, it seems entirely dependent upon those two external sources. And this is when, when I think about, look, about the, the state institutions, their integrity and, the, and their strength. I mean, we know, um, Tony's sort of alluded to, you know, non-state actors, non-state military actors and institutions, we know that the Iranians are very good at building non-state apparatus. And this is what I say when we think about Syria, when we try to visualize what that might be four or five years' time, and sort of settlement, post-settlement phase, you can have maybe parallel structures. You could have a, a separate sort of Hezbollah existing within Syria. That's going to be a very different uh, apparatus. But this is what's very interesting, I think, is, is the, the difference between the, the Russian conceptualization or the Russian approach and the Iranian approach, where the Russians place the emphasis on state institutions and the integrity of those institutions, whereas the Iranians sort of operate right. more at a sort of subterranean level. Parallel, think, structure. parallel structures. And I think that's probably what we're looking at. Right. Andrew, you were going to... So, uh, I mean, in terms of... Um, first of all, I would agree with Neil and... Um, 
you know, it's a clientelist regime. Uh, this is not the first one we've ever seen on the planet, uh, probably not the last. Um, Assad regime, more speaking. Right. Um, so if uh, we do have a, uh, on the Washington Institute's website, we have a chart of the regime that I built in 2013. Um, it's under a story called uh, All the Tyrants Men. And uh, you, you can look at the chart. You can see who's in their various positions. We haven't updated it recently. Uh, you can see who's, blood, who's you know, related by blood to uh, another member of the regime. You can see who's related by business ties and so on. Now, that's all fine and well, and we, have, we know who's in the regime. That's not a problem. The problem is knowing what all those folks do under certain circumstances. And the visibility inside the regime is, and the predictability, I, no, I wouldn't say the visibility, but say the predictability is difficult and, and, and it's hard for us to. What do you mean? You mean different pressures, different, yes. different levers, buttons? We know about that, certain oh. rivalries between certain key individuals. We know about certain people's temperaments. We know about a variety of things, but what they will do under certain circumstances, and this is in the you know, open source uh, sort of area, is, um, is difficult to piece together. However, I think it, it's part of a larger conversation of will the, those that remain around uh, the Assad regime, in the case that the top would be removed, and this is the political transition that's often talked about, where you remove the Assad family, the Makhlouf family, the Shalish families, and about 20 others around the top. If you took all of those folks out of the country, would everyone really, even whether there were state structures or not, would, you're telling me all of those people who have their necks on the line are going to just run for the hills and let the jihadists, who they say dominate the opposition, come in and take over and execute people on Maui Square? I find that far-fetched. I think they will probably, most, most people are naturally, I'm not talking about politically here, uh, conservative. Right? They make, especially when their families are on the line, they're going to make very measured moves. Some are, some are going to panic, but I think they're going to make very measured moves. And that's where whatever political solution we work out has to manage, and this gets to Tony's point and others, we have to be able to manage these environments. And that's, that's going to be the challenge of, the next, of this administration and probably into the next. Tony, you were going to say something. No, just a, an actual point. You're asking about what we know about the regime. I mean, like, so Andrew has said this before. So there's an assessment that basically... Its actual um, fighting power in terms of people who are not people who are manning checkpoints and holding territory, deployable manpower, right? deployable manpower offensive manpower, is about twenty thousand, which is astonishingly small, right? Which, by the way, underscores their inability to capitalize, despite the propaganda post. Aleppo, and even leading up to Aleppo with that big conference that they did in Damascus, uh, you know, and so on, and, and, and the people who went there and are continuing the propaganda since then, the idea that somehow um, it, it's done, it's over, it's wrap it up, the regime has won, go home. Um, well, leading up to the Khan Shaykhun chemical weapons incident is a good, inst is, is, is instructive, because what you see is they tried to capitalize on Aleppo and move east to, to, to get there, to get to Raqqa first. And one of the things that they want to do, uh, which is what Lena was talking, is just kind of uh, to, uh, to be present, right? You don't have to take it, right? Just be present, be there, and then, then force people to deal with you when you're there, right? So they tried to do that in Raqqa, and they tried to even do it, you know, Palmyra, and then move further east from Palmyra. And then it kind of fell apart. 
Why? Because it left open stuff in eastern Damascus, and all of a sudden stuff in, started blowing up in eastern Damascus, in the heart of Damascus. And then there was an offensive in Hama, and they were almost near Hama city, and that's when he used the chemical. Right? So basically, and everybody had to kind of go back and retrench. So their ability to extend simultaneously to, to do real military operations is very limited. That doesn't mean that they can't substitute that with coalition building and using other uh, uh, instruments to maintain their position in the East. Let me, um, did you want to, because I, I, I was going to, I was going to come back to something, but if you have something to, that you wanted to add to, to, to add a point, if I may, sure. outside of the military issue, because this has now been very well covered, when we talk about regime institutions, right. one thing we have to bear in mind, the regime has worked very hard to conflate the notion regime and state. So when we talk about the, the, the state, they, the regime wants us to talk about, basically think about the regime, and the regime and the state are not, too, are, are not the same thing. But um, what's happening at the moment, and that's something, by the way, the new project that I presented that we're going to launch at the end of the month will look at in detail. What's happening at the moment is in uh, areas in northern Syria controlled by the opposition, there is no presence anymore for old state institutions. They have stopped basically operating the regime apart from ISIS controlled areas and Kurdish areas that we heard of but in Idlib for example the regime has stopped paying people's right. salaries in these areas. Instead we have the rise of new institutions such as local councils such as new court systems some of them set up by Islamist armed groups some of them not all kinds of new structures that mean that when the dust settles these new areas will have a different configuration of governance and expectations from the people to what we had before. So in a way, thinking about whether state institutions remain intact or not is beside the point because the lay of the land has changed. That's interesting. When it comes to ISIS areas, because the state institutions have remained present, at least nominally, through continuing to, uh, you know, uh, the risk operation between the regime and ISIS, even now on the provision of services like electricity, etc., but also the paying of salaries, it, it's actually a bit easier to imagine that at least the structures can continue. However, in regime areas, the state institutions still exist, but their functions have changed. Uh, there is a huge number of so-called NGOs that have been set up by the pro-regime militias that are operating in parallel as well as conjunction with the state institutions. And the regime has changed the way state institutions function in order to accommodate these so-called NGOs. For example, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has set up a bureau to deal with funding coming from foreign sources to NGOs in Syria. And this is done as a way to enable the militias to get their hands on foreign funding through a legitimate kind of route. So this means that the state institutions, even in regime areas, are not intact. And they are being changed by the rise of these new militia-led um, um, organizations. But at the same time, in order to let people breathe a bit, the regime has, for the first time, 
allowed so-called civil society organizations to, to operate, which is not something that it had tolerated before. This also means that once the dust settles, there are new expectations from people in regime areas. So there are some structures that will be in place, but inside, if you just look beneath the shell, the dynamics are very different in different regions, and it's not one size fits all. Interesting. One of the things that I wanted to come to, since we are talking to, you said you know we've been speaking a lot about military solutions. This is a question that's been going on uh, for a while. Certainly, Obama administration uh, Secretary Kerry tried to engage the Russians. So, does it make sense for that? And also. Uh, if we're saying how thin the regime is getting, um, is the answer then to talk to the Russians, to try to cut some sort of... Uh, Andrew, I think you nearly gasped down there. I'm, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> why, don't you, why, why, why don't you go... But, but actually, I'd like to hear... But I, I would like to hear you guys talk about this, but I'd very much like to hear you guys mm -hmm. talk about this as well, how, how London is thinking about this and how the rest of Europe is thinking about it. Also knowing that that for Europe it is a different issue right now with a refugee crisis and where Europe may believe the, uh, you know, how you turn off the spigot. Andrew, though, you'd like to start. Just, I mean, just throw something out there. So I think, um, first of all, the, the, the Russian position is, is, not of, is, is not monolithic. And what I mean by, what I mean by that is, <laughs> On the one hand, you have those who are who the U.S. Uh, State Department and so on engage with more Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, they have one view of Syria, um, and you know behind the scenes, I think they and those around them realize the the real limitations of the regime. But that they're not the only entity in the Russian system. The Ministry of Defense is another major entity, and that entity, uh, which is operating inside of Syria, um, thought by in, by all indications thought that. They were going to enter Syria. It was going to be a cakewalk. They were going to be done by the end of 2015, and they'd be out. Uh, that hasn't occurred. Um, so um, the longer the, the so the question is, you know, does it does it does it pay? The question you raised, does it pay to talk to the Russians? Well, I think it depends on when, how and how stuck they are, and and can you get them stuck? And this is where I think it's again, it was Obama's language was. That it was that the that the conflict was naturally a quagmire. I'm not sure that's the case. I think it depends on what the international community is doing, what neighboring countries are doing, and can you get the Russian? If the Russians are stuck, or can you get them stuck? Can you engage them at a certain point and lead in a direction that you want to go in? And I, the the difficulty in that is not just getting the Russian decision, which is hard enough. It's that Bashar is in a very uh, advantageous position to be able to triangulate with the Iranians at the same time. So I guess uh, in order to, to bridge this divide, you probably need to go and talk to Walid Jumblat in Lebanon and uh, the master of triangulation and talk to him a little <laughs> bit about this. I'm sure he'd give you good advice. But it's, I think it's a, it, it's a major problem because Bashar has this advantage, this structural advantage uh, in, in, the, in, the, in terms of his allies. Tony, would you like to? Uh... Uh, sure. So uh, the Obama administration encouraged regional states to cut a deal with the Russians, right? So they viewed the Russian intervention in Syria as a good thing. That's explicit. You can find specific commentary to that effect by officials of the Obama administration. What has happened now 
with the Trump administration following, and this is why I know people have scoffed, oh, 59 tomahawks, and everybody rolled their eyes, right? That event in and of itself changed, changed dynamics all around, within Syria and without Syria. Why? Very simply. It's the difference between the United States saying, go talk to Vlad, and then all of a sudden the United States saying, oh, no, no, we're here for you. We're here to listen to what you want. We're here possibly to consider setting up a zone near Jordan. We're here, we, we agree with Israel that the IRGC shouldn't set foot on the Golan Heights, right? That, in and of itself, now with the Turkey issue is a different issue because of the YPG, so we're kind of stuck in that dynamic. But with Israel and Jordan, the dynamic changed instantaneously. You had, for instance, prior to the strike, a, uh, the, the chief of staff of the Jordanian armed forces made a very uh, famous interview in which he said, if the regime has the capacity, it's a, it was a very carefully worded, in, people interpreted it as, a, as an opening to the regime, it wasn't. It was a very carefully worded statement. If you have the capacity to bring the government forces, not the Iranian militias, to the border of Jordan, and control it, we will open the border. We will normalize uh, the, the traffic, right? So that was a message to the Russians, basically. So they were petitioning the Russians. If the Russians can guarantee the border and keep the Iranians away, fine, we'll work with Assad, we'll work with you. After the strikes, they started talking to the Americans and with the Saudi input as well. And guess what? The Russians, the regime, the Iranians started attacking the Jordanians and threatening them on a daily basis, leading all the way to Assad himself, right, threatening them, right? Why? Because all of a sudden, there's a dynamic that doesn't require interaction with the Russians anymore. All it took was a minor change, in, uh, a minor use of force and a change in posture. Once that happens, the Russians will find themselves not necessarily... Uh, and, and I know people made the same thing with Israel. They made a big deal about the deconfliction mechanism that, this, that the Israelis have with the Russians. And they built it up as some form of major thing. It's not. It's basically, as one senior uh, official told me in Israel, it's we don't shoot your stuff, you don't shoot our stuff. And that's it. That really is it. Meaning, if we cross paths, there's not, it's a military deconfliction mechanism. It is not a political uh, uh, agreement. So the Russians haven't been able to string or rope in the Jordanians and the Israelis as much as they had thought they might, which is what the Obama policy was leading towards. Now there's a shift. So that makes our the need for us to work with the Russians or how we decide to do that, it changes completely. Militarily, we don't need the Russians because their assets in places like uh, eastern Syria are non-existent. It's the Iranians and the regime militias, and the United States doesn't need that. In fact, it's completely antithetical to what we want to build in eastern Syria, which is probably more a local Sunni force as opposed to regime force. So I would say now, for instance, with the Astana meeting, the United States didn't sign on to the Astana meeting, which I think is a great decision. Not our, it's not our business. We're, it's not, we're not in the business of legitimizing the Russians in Syria. Our job is to work with our allies to achieve uh, very specific goals, basically. Right. Um, I, I'm going to ask Neil, you, and then Lena, and then I'm going to open it up for 
Uh, I'm going to open it up in a, in a couple of minutes for uh, for a few questions, if there are any coming from the floor. But if the, if Neil, if you would like to. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, I think from an EU perspective, and certainly from a UK perspective, um, there's a lack of confidence in speaking with the Russians. And as I said earlier, in, in a sense that there's very little leverage. We have very little leverage to use uh, within the conflict. And and uh, I ask you something which, it, which just occurred to me. I should have asked yeah. it before when you said there's little confidence in speaking to the Russians. How much confidence is there right now in the new administration, which I know is still finding its way in, in many ways, but I think it's also important to get a picture from outside Washington of how people are looking at this new White House. As, as the two of you discussed, there's just been so much noise here the last couple of days. So uh, so I'm, I'm sorry to throw this on you as well, but just again, just to get a sense of how how people are looking at in, in, in this particular in this particular channel regarding Syria and regarding the Middle East, <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, yeah thanks, Lee. <laughs> I mean, I think it's I think the jury is out. I think you know it's 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 a case of um, it's it's a new team, it's a new horizon. We've just got to sit on the side. We've just got to wait this out. Um, but we've got to be hopeful too. Uh, and, and you can see, I mean, from the UK perspective, at right. least, that this is an opportunity in a kind of prospect in a post-Brexit world, um, when we're looking for key partners, and we love to use a horrible term, special relationship, which I think is a horrific uh, term. It's, it's but, a nice but, phrase. <laughs> we, we like it here. <laughs> <laughs> we feel warmly to, toward you, our, thank you. Our, thank our, you our older much. cousins. That's so, I mean, but but it's more of a sort of a, you know it's a wing and a prayer. It's just hoping. It's just hoping that we can have that relationship. And you know we we saw we saw the meeting with uh, with our prime minister and your and your president. And uh, you know she came back and she's very warm and very glowing. But it's yeah. but it's more aspirational than anything else. But that w is within the context of you know post Brexit right. and, and where we're tending and when, where we're heading. Um, so it's it's there. I just wanted to pick up on a point, if I can. Right, no, sure, sure, sure. Just, no, absolutely. Just, yeah. just to something um, that Tony had mentioned earlier, and that was, you know, sort of the, the Obama approach to Iran, or whether you want to call it the geopolitical kind of balancing or counterbalancing. I mean, what we have now, particularly within the EU, uh, sorry, within the UK, is whereas we were quite interested to explore that Iranian relationship, we know that the EU and the EU partners are sort of moving ahead with that a little bit, but are, we've now sort of you know, decoupled from that process, and now we're getting down to the yeah. now we're getting to the other side of the Gulf. That's where our key wow. relationships are: Saudi Arabia, in particular, Very down to the UAE. Yeah. And again, it's kind of post-Brexit world as we come out of the Very EU. That's where we see our key relationships. I served in the UK government um, some time ago, and when the coalition government came in in 2010, there was a slight slight reorienting towards the Gulf, and there was the Gulf strategy was sort of put in place. But now Mrs. May is uh, there and looks like she's going to be re-elected and quite possibly with a landslide. That's going to be a, a key direction of travel. So there will be a decoupling yeah, that's very, from that's Iran very and the region. Yeah. So it's, it's not really sure or clear how that's going to sort of play out within the Syria file. But needless to say, sort of Syria isn't a major UK government priority right. at the moment. It's, we're all self-consuming. We're all about the EU and we're all about how we manage Brexit. That's where... Most of our energy is, but right. developing those markets right. uh, down in the Gulf, that's and attracting that investment. Definitely, I mean, we're presumably seeing it through. Uh, have, being closer to the Gulf perspective will 
shape uh, London's vision of Syria differently than if it's going along with the rest of the EU toward yeah. Iran. I think. I, yeah, I will complicate that slightly. Okay. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because there is no Syria strategy in the UK at the moment. It's not a priority. They are basically essentially waiting for U.S. leadership. And so far, as I said, there doesn't seem to be a comprehensive strategy in Washington yet. I'm sorry, can I uh, interrupt for just one second? Mm -hmm. Because speaking to different, <laughs> different Euro uh, European diplomats in town, they say, actually, for us, the, a really big thing is Syria, because for us, the refugee crisis yes. is such a huge issue. So is it partly, again, because of because now that uh, because of Brexit, they're like, okay, so that is a concern for the continent in some will, ways, I but here go, in London, it's I not will the go same. as far as saying there is no EU strategy either or European okay. strategy either. They talk about the Syrian issue, as you said, from the framework of refugees, right. humanitarian aid, how do we stop these refugees from coming, but not politically. No one is talking yeah. about how do we actually end this conflict. So no one in the European continent seems to have at the moment um, a strategy that is very political. The EU is playing the role of supporter, um, you know, humanitarian aid, civil society, fluffy issues. Uh, the UK is just waiting for some political will to be developed in Washington so that it can also play a supporting role. That's about it. Militarily, as I said, the uh, UK is very much engaged in the anti-ISIS fight, but just strictly military. What is happening with the Gulf, though, is... Although Theresa May, our Prime Minister, when she went to Saudi Arabia for the GCC summit back in December um, and said that we understand, she said, the threat posed by Iran, I personally don't think that the UK is going to go very far in trying to put pressure on Iran for the sake of Saudi Arabia. I think, if anything, the Saudi hopes that there's going to be a radical shift in Washington or in London regarding Iran is not going to materialize. I think at best what Saudi Arabia can hope is for the UK and the US to turn a blind eye to, for example, what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen as the support that it will get as Saudi Arabia on the Iranian issue from the West, as opposed to more active actions such as canceling the nuclear deal, for example. I don't think the UK will go as far as that. I don't personally see this deal being cancelled even um, by this administration here in Washington. So we have to be a bit careful about what the uh, uh, increased uh, engagement with the Gulf means politically for Syria. I think economically, 100%, the UK is heading in a direction in which the Gulf is being seen as an alternative to the loss of the European single market. But politically, it's a different issue, and I wouldn't count too much on it. All right, very interesting. I am going to open it up. Um, let's see who has... Uh, if you come, I'm, I'm going to call on people, and we have... At least two microphones here. So if you would, uh, if you would, if you would wait one second, is that Rafi? Do you have your? If you could, uh, this gentleman right here, right there, Rafi, if you would stand and introduce yourself to others who who, who don't know you. Thank you. I'm Rafi Danziger, an advisor to APEC. My question is also about Russia, and we just heard General Keane speaking at the Washington Institute uh, the other day, 
talking about how Russia is everywhere. He said Libya, Egypt, Syria, of course. He said the Russians in the Sinai. I never heard that before. And so is uh, the Syria issue for Russia simply part of an overall strategy for Russia to get back into the Middle East the way the Soviet Union was, or is it a more limited kind of a, an issue for Russia? Thank you. Well, <laughs> so, I, I mean, uh, so there, thanks, they, well, okay. My interaction with the Russians is that over the last few years, um, they have, the, uh, Moscow has made, made a decision to expand its influence into areas where it previously had not been. And the vehicle that they use to do that is through the argument of color revolutions and to counter these color revolutions. Um, so their Ministry of Defense uh, conferences, which I've attended in the last couple of years, um, they spell out quite openly, and I would encourage you to look at their website because it's actually quite good, um, that they had, a, they had a theory that the United States um, had a, a low-cost plan to destabilize their near abroad, and that was in Ukraine and a number of other countries, in which um, they encouraged people to come out in the streets to confront their army and security services. Uh, that conflict led to a Security Council resolution that justified the use of military force, which was used to flip that country over to the West. And this color revolutions argument uh, used to just be applied to their, to their near abroad. Now it's been extended to the Middle East. So previously, as little as three years ago, their argument, arguments in the Middle East were color revolutions uh, in Ukraine, but in the Middle East it was just fighting terrorism and dealing with instability. Now the color revolutions argument is down in the Middle East. And their alternative to that is, um, is not something that's just slapped together. They actually have a strategy. It's called military-to-military -military cooperation, where like-minded countries come together uh, and uh, basically help uh, shoot their way out of these crises and bring about stability. Uh, and that is their plan. It is on the Ministry of Defense website. It is not a secret. And um, that is the vehicle they're using to promote. They're, they're projecting their power in the Middle East by trying to give people what it is they desperately want, and that is this order. Um, the problem is, of course, and I think many of us here in, the, uh, in Washington agree, that's not real stability. That's, that's temporary order. Um, but they see that as the primary uh, thing that uh, Middle Eastern parties want at the moment. And I think that's that's uh, the reason why they've been able to project their power as successfully as they have been. I, 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 I would just add add something to that, which is that, uh, I mean, the, the Russians themselves, as Tony hinted at before, talking about 20, uh, 20 planes, what, I mean, they have more than 20 I mean, planes now, but right. I mean, the Russian investment, I, I'm, they've managed to project an awful lot of power very inexpensively, or they, relatively inexpensively. They run their Syria operations out of their training budget of their military. It's 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 pretty <laughs> the whole thing, right? So I mean, it would be it would be curious to know what happens if the price gets raised on the Russians. And this is what Tony as Tony and I have spoken about this before. This is one of the I I, I believe that this is one of the things that happened with the uh, with fifty nine Tomahawk. Oh, that's right. They punctured a hole in Putin's plans. Like, well, you did it on the cheap. We just we just fired 59 tomahawks at you. Now, now where do we go? Right. Uh, so none of them were intercepted. Right. And yeah. Right. And, and they were all. I mean, the point is the S 400 and all of that in Syria. Uh, they project power, but they project power insofar as the United States is not projecting power back. Right. Because if the United States were actually to 
highlight its own assets in the region, be it in the Mediterranean, be it in Israel, be it in Jordan, be it in Turkey, be it in Cyprus, etc., then all of a sudden a couple of systems on the coast of, uh, of, of uh, Syria uh, become very vulnerable. Right? Yes, sure, you can shoot down uh, planes, but... Uh, Andrew, were you going to... A bunch of uh, missiles, uh, you know, that just penetrated uh, Syrian airspace. Well, you know, they hit here. They could hit elsewhere, too. So uh, this gentleman up here, if you just wait one second and please introduce yourself. Thank you for your time. Rahim Rashidi from Kurdistan TV. My question is what, we, what will happen for the Kurdish situation in Rojava after ISIS? Uh... The what? I'm sorry. The situation, for the situation Kurds in the Kurds after after oh after ISIS. <laughs> um, Lena, would you like to? Do you have a? Um, well, what I can say is uh, Rojava as a as a governance project rose after the Syrian conflict because it was an opportunity for the Kurds to demand self autonomy. But this is a red line for Turkey. So. The Kurds in that region have been used again and again by different um, external entities and promised political gains that very rarely materialized, including by the Assad regime that only recently gave them uh, citizenship uh, rights, for example, uh, on par with everybody else in Syria. So I suspect that what might happen is they will get something increased uh, self-autonomy, but not full self-autonomy. Actually, my colleague in the audience, Tim Eaton, who is one of the main authors of this report, can talk about this issue a lot more eloquently. Would you? Would you like to? Would you? So, yeah, I, 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 sorry, I, I, Tim, I, I, but, putting Tim, you on the spot. You don't have to, but Tim is not on the panel. But Tim is Tim is at Chatamas as well, and 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 Tim and I actually put the panel together. So thank you, and I I offered him the opportunity beforehand if he wanted to speak on something mentioned in the report. But now there's an opportunity for you to answer a question if you would like. Just a uh, microphone. Okay. <laughs> All right. You can, you can get back at us later. Yeah. Well, I think that what's very noticeable when we look at other offensives, say Mosul, we often criticize the absence of a political strategy. We've heard the pitfalls of the military strategy in Raqqa, and we certainly have no political strategy. There is no political strategy for what happens afterwards in, in Raqqa city, let alone what happens in Kurdish-majority uh, areas of the northeast. And I think that's a really big open question, certainly something I'd be interested to hear from Andrew and Tony on for U.S. policy. I mean, it seems that actually the Kurds, more than any other actor in the Syrian conflict, need the presence of ISIS for their external support. Once that lever goes, it's very unclear what leverage they have. Uh. Yet at the same time, they're a significant force on the ground that can't be ignored. Right. So I think that's a, a really big open question, and I don't think it's one that can be put off by... Western policymakers much longer, bearing in mind, um, you know, the, the the restraints that are put in place by Turkish demands, etc. But it's a fact of life. I mean, we've got to understand that a lot of these um, these institutions have been in place for nearly five years now. That's quite a significant experience of self-governance. So um, I think that that's really something that has to come into the debate soon, because otherwise we'll just end up on the precipice, and it'll be too late to to tackle. Andrew, did you? Because I mean, okay. Yeah, just I mean, one of the one of the frustrating things of watching the policy unfold over the last six years was that for all the talk about Turkey today and and the and the PYD areas, 
fact of the matter is that the Turks did bring up an, an initiative in 2012 when they were in the middle of their peace talks with the PKK in, in, in Turkey itself. They did put forward uh, an initiative for the PYD-governed areas for there to be a modus vivendi with them, provided that it's not exclusively run by the PYD, that you bring in, because this is, this is where the idea of Kurds, as I say, is meaningless as an analytical category, because the Turks proposed that Barzani KDP Kurds get brought in and pro-Barzani parties in Syria become part of the governing structure, as well as Arabs and so on and so forth. The PYD rejected it, right? Then uh, built on, uh, you know, restarted the the uh, the um, uh, fight in in Turkey itself, and and so on. Then came Kobani. Same situation. Turkey got a lot of slack for that. The problem, the thing is, they were like, okay, bring in Peshmerga from from Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, we bailed them out in Kobani because they didn't have to make concessions because all of a sudden the U.S. Air Force came in. And then Saleh Muslim, the head of the PYD, comes up and says, I will not have a situation in Rojava that mirrors that of the KRG where you have two heads. I will not share, basically, Rojava with uh, Barzani. That's it. Just like you have Barzani and Talabani in the Kurdistan regional government. I'm not going to have that replicated in, in Syria, right? He could say that. Why? Because the Americans were behind him because of the ISIS leverage that Tim talked about because we needed that, and that was the priority. They f did further. They, they were contained in Rojava. All of a sudden, they expand into Iraq. They're in Sinjar, right? They build up a presence in Sinjar. They open up. They used the United States uh, um, campaign to expand politically in ways so as to avoid having to make concessions that in dealing with either Barzani or, or Turkey. And this is what I had mentioned earlier, that our presence there cannot be led by these local actors or the tactical uh, uh, issues of the campaign versus ISIS. We have to start thinking about how do we leverage this tremendous power that we have there and in Iraq and in, you know, into something that politically people can especially in Turkey, can live with. Because otherwise, you're incentivizing Turkey now to become a spoiler moving forward. And therefore, you're opening up a whole bunch of opportunities for the Russians, which was what we saw in the Astana deal, right? Which is they snagged Turkey as part of it. Andrew, did you want to add? Because I'm, sure. I'm... No, I mean, that's... Yeah. that's uh, so, I mean, you know, the YPG, uh, SDF, I mean... It's a real mixed bag, right? Because as politically unpalatable as 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 it as it is, I think, especially for the internal parties, as you go down the Euphrates, I mean, you have to say something that you know they didn't they the they understood from very early on that power is not something that someone gives you. You have to organize and you have to take it, right? And they and they did that. Now, w w the United States has helped them do that to a certain extent. The the real policy conundrum we're into, and that gets to Tony's point, which you put very well. That is, it is not in the interest of the YPG to go down the Euphrates Valley and get themselves stuck down there. Okay? <laughs> Believe me, it's not. And we need to help them realize that and, and to work with parties like Turkey to help create an alternative in that area and to work and to, to, to build up those areas 
Um, and that is, that's tough stuff because of managing the animosities between Turkey um, and the YPG, which are, which, are, which are not small. And I don't know how you do that at, at the moment. That is where we need to have some really serious discussions uh, because these two parties absolutely hate each other for now, and, uh, all things remaining equal. If there is a solha or if, there's a, uh, if they decide to go back into some sort of um, understanding as they had in the past between the PKK, particularly in Turkey and the Turkish in Ankara, then we might be talking about something differently. But it, at the moment, it is not in the interest of the YPG to go down the Euphrates because it's going to take them away from what it is that really counts for them. My, just one last point. My fear with the PKK, and this is something we've, we've written about and discussed, is my fear is you see, however imperfect the analogy, is that you see something reminiscent of what happened with the Maronites in the 80s in, in Lebanon, right? Where you have a local actor that becomes more intransigent and let things go to their head as to what they are capable of doing in terms of the big game of nations and manipulating players regionally and internationally, uh, that they lose perspective of their place and their size, right? And I, th I fear that happening with the PKK such that the potential consequences could be rather bloody, uh, and and much again as has happened with the Maronites. So I I think it for their sake as much as ours, it behooves the United States to remind them of their size and of their place, and you know where they, where they fit in this bigger picture. Um, I'm sorry, we've gone over. Uh, so oh, we're going to bring this to a conclusion, but I, I invite you to stick around and see if, if you have any questions to see if the panelists are, are free to answer a brief question rather than uh, respond to statements. In the meantime, I wanted to thank you very much mm -hmm. for coming this afternoon. I wanted to thank the panelists, uh, and thanks to Hudson very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.